it's so clear that the evidence is there, but that in, in most of medicine, nutritional status is overlooked. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. A skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Hello and welcome to another episode within our medical series where we are talking with Dr. Katherine Godwin who is medical doctor and medical director of the outpatient services at Laureate's Independent Living Program for Outpatient Eating Disorders. Today we are also joined by our medical co-host Dr. Michaela Voss who you met in an earlier episode. In this episode, we hear lots of things, nuggets for not only medical providers, but for dietitians and therapists alike. It's all this biopsychosocial, our body is a Lego system. Love this analogy, listen in to hear how she uses it to help people understand how when a body is malnourished, medications don't work or don't work as well. So she also talks about medications improving brain plasticity and those areas of your brain that are doing the hard work. Medications can help the brain do the new experience and the new learning to enhance your work. But please keep in mind that medications aren't everything and that the psychiatrist and dietitian and therapist can help that patient through the decision-making process about any of their medical choices. Today's episode is sponsored by Laureate, and it is an intentionally small not-for-profit eating disorders program in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and they've been providing exceptional care for women and girls for a long time, since 1989. They have an individualized care and a nature-focused campus. Their philosophy is a relational philosophy, and they have dedication to eating disorders research, which you'll hear Dr. Godwin talk a little bit about today, and that's what sets Laureate apart in the national treatment landscape. The program consists of independent adult and adolescent programs. Know that if you send your patients to Laureate, they're going to benefit from a 1 to 3 therapist to patient ratio, full-time board certified attending psychiatrists, evidence-based medical nutrition therapy, and a dedication to continuity of care. And by the way, many of their staff are certified eating disorder specialists. So patients are treated the same by the same physician, therapist, and dietitian from the acute level of care all the way through discharge. And adult patients who successfully complete the inpatient program are offered 30 days of care at the Magnolia House, which is Laureate's independent living home, at no cost. So to learn more about things that are happening at Laureate, visit the show notes to see stfrancis.com backslash Laureate. We are here today with Dr. Katherine Godwin. We are so really honored that you joined us today. Thank you for having me. Just to get things started, we have a few easy questions. So mountains or beach? Beach. Oh, mountains. Oh, beach. <laughs> <laughs> mountains. 
<laughs> my husband's a geologist, so I, I think I have to go mountains. <laughs> but you can. It's an understandable answer. Thank <laughs> okay. you. Thank you. I agree. Okay. What about this one? Breakfast or dinner? Breakfast. That was fast. Yeah. Breakfast for dinner. That's fine. Too. <laughs> Is there a certain food that you really love for breakfast? I'm a savory breakfast person, but if you have to go with it, it's a blueberry pancake with your egg over easy and just go ahead and crumble your bacon and syrup over the top of that. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah, so you've got your salty, you've got your sweet. Mm-hmm. Nice. All right. And then audio book or paper book? Paper. Yeah, that was fast too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to, this podcast is for all professionals in the field of eating disorders. So we just want to pick your brain because you have so many amazing things to teach us. You probably had to take several different board exams through your career. Maintaining my certification as we speak. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I want to, I don't want to traumatize you too much, but I want to take you back to a test or board exam that you had to do that you remember anything for those who are listening, who are kind of newer in the field and getting ready to take that test or getting ready to retake a certification? What I say to anyone who is studying for a certification is that it is a certification to make sure that you know what you're doing and it is for proficiency, but not for excellence. So most people are functioning more in an excellence category and that's how they're grading themselves. So recognizing that you can take a deep breath, and relax and it'll be fine because you are proficient. That is excellent advice. Dr. Voss, you're getting ready to go into something, right? I have to take my adolescent medicine initial boards exam and I'm very nervous about it. Yeah. You're the expert. You do it all day, every day, but also they have the most stupid questions. And I think in eating disorders in particular, the questions are written in a way that has no nuance to it. And so once you're at a more expert level within a field, you read the question and you're like, well, it could be this, it could be that, it could be the other. There's exactly, the, you know, and, you and know they're too asking much. it really basic. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, hold on. What are they really wanting to know? I have to answer it the way they expect me to answer it, not the way that I think. That- yeah. Which is, well, actually, I just asked the patient more questions is what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Awesome. Yeah. Do often you- my answer isn't on there. <laughs> Yeah. Well, how did you get into medicine? How did you get into eating disorders, Dr. Godwin? So medicine, I always knew. I actually remember my brother, who's a little bit older than me and his friends, they were pretty rough in the way they would play and they would get injuries and I would put them on the hammock and pour hydrogen peroxide on them and nurse them back to health. Oh my gosh. And I remember telling my dad that I was going to be a nurse. And he said, you know, women can be doctors. And I was like, oh, (laughs) and it was kind of from then forward. So that was always really straightforward. I thought I would be a surgeon because I love hands-on. I love construction work. I love building is seeing the result of your work in that moment. And psychiatry is the opposite. It's really, you put in a lot of love and strain and second guessing. So I thought I would be a surgeon. I I lost some of my vision actually. And in medical school, I lost some of my vision and I was doing my psychiatry rotation while I actually couldn't see to read or to drive. And 
I realized I can do this work <laughs> wow. regardless of, of the vision concern. So that's how I came into psychiatry. My doctors at first were like, no, you should go ahead. And I had a recurrence like psychiatry sounds really good. And, and it's been just the love of my life to do it because the things that an eating disorder in particular, because I wanted to maintain all that hard work you do to get generalized knowledge. I wanted to maintain all of that. And I worried as you went down to a really specialized field, you would lose everything. But in, in eating disorders, I'm a GI specialist, <laughs> especially a GI specialist, but all things. So it really maintains the medical acuity. And then we have to think through our patients at a much more integrated level because there's a general assumption in medicine that patients are well-nourished and that the medicines that we give them are going to function in their bodies like they would in a nourished body. And that's not true for our eating disorder patients, regardless of weight. We know malnutrition is independent of weight, but also any, anybody who's in a poverty situation or a failure to thrive situation, geriatric populations, children, they all have very nutritional, different nutritional situations. And that really impacts their body's ability to utilize the medications as we would expect them to. Yeah. So what does your role at Laureate look like with eating disorder patients and as a psychiatrist? What are your hands-on things you're doing with them? So I'm the medical director of the adult inpatient program at Laureate, and it is my full-time job. So I see all the patients at acute, that's seven days a week, but I get two days off with some coverage. At residential, we see them three to five days a week and at partial three days a week. I initially was doing Magnolia House, which is our transitional living program. So I was that that's how I came into eating disorders at Laureate, but I'd already had experience in my residency. So I'm I'm hands-on full-time eating disorder. I see every patient, they're all mine. <laughs> and we do have an internist who does their admission physicals, but I take care of all of their medical concerns throughout their stay, unless there's something that is really outside of the issue of the eating disorder that needs its own attention. So we are doing GI and cardiology and physical rehabilitation. Great. So I, I wanted to go back to how you were pulling out this concept of the malnourished body doesn't respond to medicines the same way as a nourished one. And I think that is such an important concept to understand. I have primary doctor's send patients to me that are on an SSRI, which is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor for the, those listening. That's a, a medicine that's common to treat anxiety and depression and a couple other things. So I have kids come to me on those that are really malnourished all the time. And so I'm wondering if you could speak to why those medicines doesn't, don't work. And if there's something those doctors should be doing instead. Yeah, absolutely. So there, there's a lot of data. And I, I will mention first that there's a research bias that research in malnutrition specific to eating disorders really looks at anorexia nervosa. And, and that's for multiple reasons that they, that they need to be so narrow in their research focus. So they have a defined population and they know they're studying the same thing. But the things that cause the malnutrition in anorexia nervosa are the same things that cause the malnutrition in bulimia nervosa or atypical anorexia or orthorexia. And so the way that I say it is that any eating disorder with a starvation component, restriction, restriction of specific food groups, purging, or relative nutrient deficiency that impacts available chem chemical targets in the body and in the brain. 
if we think of our, I have little boys, if you think of your body as a Lego system, everything we eat is a Lego brick. And then our genes, our, our bodies break them down into all the individual bricks and then have to rebuild them to support our thyroid function, our energy, our cognitive function, all of our neurochemistry. So when when we eat our proteins and we eat our vitamins and our body breaks those down, it has to determine where am I going to use these bricks? And it's going to have to prioritize our physical requirements for life before it can prioritize that we are happy. That Lego example is very helpful about breaking down and rebuilding. And as a dietitian, it's one of those building blocks of all things. And we have to have them in our diet on a regular basis. Otherwise we start to borrow from, from the other Lego box if we, that we may not have. That's really yeah. helpful. I do best with visuals and things like that. And as a nutritionist, just talking about the building blocks of nutrition or of, of proteins in the body or back to Dr. Voss's question, probably. Um, yeah. So I was just thinking about if they don't have those building blocks, what do we do? How, why does that medicine not work? Yeah. Tell me if I'm going to say too much, but like SSRIs in particular, Prozac, Paxil, Zoloflexa, Proselexa, they, and then all the other ones that are SNRIs and these other forms, we have most psychiatric medications operate on the monoamines, which are serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. The SSRI depends on serotonin already being in your system. And the SNRIs depend on serotonin and norepinephrine already being in your system. They don't give those things to you. They help the, what's already in your system be more impactful. So if you've got minimal serotonin, the medication can only be as effective as the serotonin it's acting on, as opposed to if you have a, a normal amount of serotonin, then the medication is going to have a more normal response. And we see this in study after study. We know in animal studies that food restriction reduces serotonin, both in its presence in the brain, but its synthesis as well. We know that the gonadal steroids, so by the time somebody's having eating disorder complaints to the position where their menstrual cycle is altered, or for a man where their testosterone is lower, those are the gonadal steroids. Those modulate the production of serotonin and neurochemicals. So as soon as you know somebody's hormonal cycle is being impacted, then you know that their nutrition is also impacting their brain chemistry. And then... We know that in underweight anorexia nervosa, we see that brain fluid concentrations of serotonin are low, that they recover in early weight restoration. But data overall tells us that we need about 90% of ideal body weight to expect an optimal response to a medication. I don't usually share the 90% with patients because that may give them a false marker. We know IBW is very generalized and that for an individual, we want to look more at their EBW and we don't want them to settle for 90% because we want them in their weight range. But we as clinicians and providers need to know how important it is. We can't treat their depression or their anxiety first and then hope that their eating disorder will be easier to treat because they'll be less depressed. The brain chemistry caused by the eating disorder is going to interrupt the ability to treat the depression or anxiety. So we have to get the nutrition on board in yes. order to treat uh, the depression and anxiety. So just for people who are maybe not in the nutrition world or the medical, if they're a therapist, what is IBW? What is EBW? IBW is ideal body weight. So it's a basic calculation, which the, the cheap way to say it is it's a hundred pounds for the first five foot and five and five pounds for every additional inch thereafter. 
there are also wonderful calculators and apps available <laughs> to help with that, but that that's very generalized. So somebody who's very muscular will have a high BMI and they'll be above their IBW while they're actually very fit and, and well-nourished to have that muscular fitness. So it really doesn't have anything to do with an individual, but it's, it's useful in, in generalized statements. EBW is the, the body weight that is more idealized for that person based off of their history. So we can evaluate possible EBW by looking at somebody's growth charts, seeing where they were in their life before the onset of their eating disorder. Of course, if they're growing up or did grow up in a suppressed nutritional environment, we need to calculate that in as well. But that's more about, we, we know that normal body weight defined by BMI is a broad range. And one person could be healthy in or between 107 and 135. Well, where's, where's their weight range? Well, their, their EBW is going to be more specific to where's their weight range. Where where does their body show up? Is it, is, does E stand for estimated? Yes. Okay. No, that's really helpful. And kind of going back to your whole serotonin and if you don't have it in the body kind of thing, I remember years ago trying to help someone who, a teenager who was, had already a low bone density and she would say, Beth, I'm doing my calcium. I'm doing my, I'm doing my yogurt. I'm doing my dairy, Mm -hmm. but her calorie level was still way, way low. And it's like, your body can't use, can't build bone density if it doesn't have the building blocks just to keep your heart beating. So yeah, that's the exact same parallel. And we do that conversation as well. Your body has to be well enough to have a normal hormonal cycle first and then the vitamin D and then the intake of calcium. That's when those things will make a difference. And only after all those things are in place, then you can add the weight-bearing physical activity to build your bone health back. But doing the weight-bearing physical activity before all those other steps are in place actually destroys bone before it builds it. Right. And the multivitamin is the same thing. It doesn't help if you don't have the energy. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think there are so many parallels and that's a a way in for patients sometimes because a lot of patients struggle with the concept of themselves as malnourished. You know, it's, it's a defining characteristic literally in the DSM for the eating disorder is a lack of insight into the severity of their illness and the implications of it. So I find that making medical parallels to something that is not related to body weight or size or shape making those medical parallels and having them on the same page with that. And then saying, this is the same scenario here is very helpful. And I just love when you talked about how the medicine works in the body. I mean, you can't get it any clearer that food is your medicine. I mean, that is proven on the molecular level is what you're saying. And so we Mm -hmm. use that phrase a lot, but you've got all the science to back it up. It literally is your medicine. Oh yes, I will. Make it. I will sit down with patients and do the slideshow. <laughs> I, I have several slideshows on this because I, I'm also a visual person, and I think you have to hear it and see it in different formats to really believe it. And then we talk about the where are the nutrients coming from. So tryptophan is the essential amino acid only in dietary sources that's required for serotonin synthesis. Tyrosine is required for norepinephrine and dopamine synthesis. If you're not eating foods that are rich in tyrosine and tryptophan, you're not even getting your Lego blocks in the first place. And then folic acid, which is vitamin B9, folate, 
it is added to some cereals and grains, but it's in leafy greens and legumes. If you're not eating those food groups, then you're not getting your folic acid in. And what folic acid is, is it's a toll gate on the road between tyrosine and tryptophan and your neurochemicals. You have to have your B9 on board in order to have your body be able to do that part of the processing, which is why any one person who takes out their variety and, okay, I'll eat proteins, but I won't eat fats. I'll eat vegetables and fruits, but I won't eat this. People who make choices and rule out certain food groups, they're going to have relative deficiencies, again, regardless of body weight, which are going to impact the ability of the system to work. As science as all of this is, this is great for an outpatient dietitian like myself to know because we, sure, we see the medications that our patients are taking. And so if I know they're taking X, Y, and Z or an SSRI, then in their malnourished, then I can inform them, you know, like, oh, this probably isn't doing you justice when you're not eating. I find that anything I can get to motivate them, the better. So this is very helpful. I'm so glad. I do agree that people across the the board who help patients who have eating disorder, whether they're completely non-clinical and just carers, or whether they are fully clinical, Most patients have one or two trusted people within their entire treatment team who they will go to for anything well outside of that person's discipline. And so all of us having this information allows us to say, you know, you can talk more to Dr. So-and-so about this, but I know that we need to prioritize getting these kinds of nutrients in and, and at the volume that's needed or else the medications are not going to be helpful for you. And additionally, some of our patients will have learned my medicine stopped working for me because they were on it. It was doing well. And then they slipped in their eating disorder. And as their malnutrition fell, their medicine became less and less effective. But that's not that the medicine stopped working for them or that they themselves are treatment resistant, which is a phrase that some patients internalize is like, oh, I don't respond to treatment. There's something wrong with me. No, your nutrition cut out underneath the medication and the medication stopped being helpful, but it will be helpful again. We have to get that nutrition back on board for that medicine to be helpful. Mm. And then you recently did, and this is kind of in the same realm, but shifting a little bit, you did a presentation recently on the impact of genetics on eating disorders. I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Absolutely. It's in a few different ways. One of the areas is MTHFR, which is methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. So much easier to go with MTHFR. And it is part of what takes folic acid or folate that you eat or take a a vitamin for. And it goes through a series of steps to become BH4 and L-methylfolate, which are the, the active forms of that vitamin. And they are the gatekeepers of making your nutrition into your brain chemistry. So that one particular gene has different variants and those different variants greatly impact your body's ability to transition the folic or folic acid that you're eating into the the BH4 or the L-methylfolate. This is often looked at more from a homocysteine level, which is more of a medical concern, but in mental health, there are a lot of considerations to the MTHFR. There have been some studies that show for patients who have a genetic variable there that is a lower producing variable that supplementing above the the alteration. So so supplementing the L-methylfolate in a 
format that will penetrate the, the blood brain barrier. So not peripherally like most medications, but one that will get into the brain. Supplementing that can actually help depression and anxiety symptoms in and of itself, even without Prozac or Paxil or any of the antidepressants. But just by helping this one step of normal internal chemistry to do its job a little bit more efficiently. That is so amazing. I'm like frantically writing notes over here. (laughs) (laughs) I'll forward my slides. (laughs) I am so excited to learn all of this information. Wow. I'm, I'm, I have a lot to, to ponder on after this. Okay. So can I keep asking questions about the the medicine? Because I'm just thinking from the doctor perspective, Mm -hmm. some of the things you said earlier, you talked about how they need to be at a certain ideal body weight in order for the medicine to be effective. They have to be eating enough and maintain enough nutrients and calories in order for the medicine to be effective. So I've got two burning questions in my head. One is we also know that SSRIs take a while to build up in your mm-hmm. system. And we talk about the four to six week time frame of, of at a certain dose. And so mm-hmm. does that still happen when they're malnourished? And so should they be, is there a reasonable consideration to start the medicine earlier? So they're at an effective dose when it's, when you start making serotonin, or is that just introducing side effects with no benefit? Because I work in the inpatient setting, I'm in that situation every day of this patient's nutrition is not yet in place. Their body is not yet in place for this medicine to be fully effective. But for any individual patient, they may be getting some benefit at the lower doses that will continue to improve as they go higher. And additionally, by starting a medicine early, we can assess for tolerance, assess for side effects, move the dose up into a truly therapeutic range. And that can be very helpful because most antidepressants have multiple steps, fluoxetine, which is Prozac. You know, you may start at 10 or 20 and then you go 40 and 60. And the data is very strong that if somebody has OCD that you need to go on up to 80 and maybe even as high as 120. So that's, you know, six steps of adjustment for just that one medication to get to what may be a full treatment dose. And the thing is, it's four to six weeks to start seeing the benefit add the treatment dose. So if you're not seeing it at 60, then you need to go up to the next dose. And do you wait another four to six weeks to then go to the next dose? So each, you know, it's going to take a year to get to the treatment dose. In the inpatient setting, we can start the medicine, make sure you're tolerating it. In seven days, we can go up. In another few days, we can go up. So what we're doing there is we're getting you past the starting doses and into the treatment range. And we can assess for side effects and tolerability. If a medicine's not well tolerated, great let's go on to our next trial or slow down the trial. If it's something that we know will expire once their body is more acclimated to that medication. Additionally, for those of us who do blood levels for antidepressant medications, I'd say it is not the standard of practice, but I think it's an enhanced standard of practice that we can, of course, do gene testing. Gene testing has been very popular in the last many years. You can send somebody for a gene panel and it will tell you that they'll be fine with this medication. This medication is more of a caution. There's a whole nother list of discussion we could have about that. But I've had the experience of having a patient who had the gene testing done and she was on sertraline, which is Zoloft. And her testing said, she's good to go with Zoloft. It should be fine for her. Her blood level on Zoloft was a quarter of what I expected it to be based on the amount she was taking. And the only way I know that is to do a blood test of looking at her serum level. 
So for, for that medication, what we do is after you're on a dose consistently for at least five half-lives, you take your blood level the next morning before you take your next dose. So you get a trough level and that trough level is standardized. We know what trough level we expect for a given medication. So if I get a trough level that is super low, either they're not taking it. So they're not being compliant in some way. And I can help problem solve that and, and hear more about their hesitancy or what have you. Or if I know they're being compliant, then I can say this medicine needs to be adjusted for you. Either we stay on this medicine because you're tolerating it easily and we're going to go up on the dose and keep following our blood levels until we get to what we know is a therapeutic blood level, a more expected blood level, or let's go and switch to something else that goes through a different part of our, our liver's medication processing, because maybe your body would respond better to something else. So this one particular patient, she came in on 200 milligrams a day of sertraline. She was very ill with a lot of self-harm that was very tied to her eating disorder, a very difficult patient who'd had a lot of treatment history and, and not good outcomes. And so she came in on 200, her blood level was, ex was much lower than expected. And so we increased her dose and checked a blood level and, it, and the blood level came up and, but not enough. And we increased and it came up. So it was very clear she was taking because we had a linear response. And for her, we got all the way to 500 milligrams of Zoloft, which is two and a half times the FDA regulation. And she had a huge improvement in her symptoms. We were able to bring the, the dose down just a little bit before she discharged. Probably she got further into that five to six weeks of the medication, et cetera. And as we brought it down, we recognized at one point, oh, that's too far down for her. Let's go back up just a little bit. And we kind of found her sweet spot. And there's some really good research that for OCD, we need those kinds of levels, those super therapeutic levels. What we don't know is, are they testing serum levels along the way to help guide them, which is how I came to that for this particular patient, or, or why is it that some patients need super therapeutic levels? But by doing the blood testing, we're not just looking at a, a theory of how will this patient's body respond. We're looking specifically at how is this patient's body responding and what can we do to help their body have a, a full ability to respond to a medication rather than being, de being declared treatment resistant, but it was simply because she never had the blood levels she needed. Yeah. That's taking individual medicine to the next level. I love that. Yeah. I, I really do enjoy doing that with people because we've had wonderful conversations about, it's not that you can't respond to medicines or medicines don't help you, but in this context of getting nutrition on board, let's also look at what does your body respond to? What gets your blood level where it needs to be? And, and what symptoms are we targeting? And so just out of curiosity, what blood serum level are you checking? Like what metabolite or? Almost every psychiatric medication has data that has to do with its safety data for one thing, because psychiatric medications might be more common to be used in overdose. So there's some testing resource from that position. Some psychiatric medications are an, also anti-seizure medications. So anti-seizure medications have well-established blood levels. But then there are also studies just of in a test population as this medicine was being trialed. What do people get at 20 milligrams? What was the common blood level? And you get a normal of this is where we expect plus or minus that much. And then for each medication, you can generally find that any lab has a standardized so this much for this amount. So you're, you're testing the, the drug or, or the metabolites of the drug directly, yes. not some indirect so, marker of yes. it. Okay. So serum fluoxetine, serum norfluoxetine, because that's the active metabolite of fluoxetine. So that's Prozac and then, then, and so on for each of the other ones. 
So is there a role for medications outside of SSRIs or SNRIs in the eating disorder population that might bridge the gap between those two? Absolutely. And I do want to say that OCD and eating disorder have a high crossover. We know there's about a 40% comorbid diagnoses, but we also know you don't diagnose OCD unless somebody has full OCD outside of their eating disorder presentation. For so many patients, there's an OCD styled eating disorder that would fit an OCD diagnosis in every way, except it applies to food behaviors and food beliefs. When you have that population, I believe it is reasonable to think of what we know in the OCD population, which is SSRIs are first-line treatment, supertherapeutic dosing of SSRIs or high-dose SSRIs is the second line, and then the next is to augment typically with an atypical antipsychotic medication. So that's OCD. Interestingly, in eating disorder, anorexia nervosa in particular is where the research is, When patients are at that malnourished weight and their body isn't responding to the SSRIs, whether it be at a normal dose or at a high dose, the data generally is that the atypical antipsychotics do give some benefit even during that malnourished stage. The three atypical antipsychotics have the most information are aripiprazole, which is Abilify, quetiapine, which is Seroquel, and olanzapine, which is Zyprexa. Those are the three that have the most data. None of it is FDA approved, but there's data that those help reduce the intensity and the drive of the obsessional intrusive eating disorder thought or belief. And over and over again in my patient population, even during earlier stages with malnutrition, we will see that utilizing those medications, not at antipsychotic dose ranges, but more like at antidepressant dose ranges, that using those medications in the lower dose range does really reduce the burden of the intrusive, obsessive thinking. And I'll describe it to patients in a couple of different ways. One is perhaps to hear your own voice better over the eating disorder voice, because a lot of patients understand that they can tell the difference between their eating disorder voice and their own voice, but even some patients who can't, after they're on the medication, they can tell the difference better. They can start to hear their own voice that reflects their own values, their own relationships better because the the intensity of the obsessive voice is a little bit less. And then the other way that we talk about is more about being more resilient, having a, a a thicker skin in some way in that they, even while things are very hard, they have just a pause between when things happen and their reaction to it so that they can instead fashion what their response is and have more choice and deliberation. I love both of those answers because they instill hope and we know how important hope is in treating this. So that's amazing. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. And and the two of you are talking way above my head, which is awesome because this is the medical series. But I'm I'm catching different parts of it. And and Dr. Godwin and I know Dr. Voss too, it can be hard to get people to agree to medications because what if they're afraid to let go of that eating disorder voice and hear their own voice? There's no like that's such a good question. 
I always seem to have an example for any of these things because it is so common. Our, a lot of our women are in a very high stage of ambivalence, even though in my case, they've admitted to an inpatient center for the treatment of their eating disorder. They're still in a high degree of ambivalence. I do try to reassure patients that I can't take their eating disorder away from them. I wish I could, but I cannot. What I can do is I can give them a tool and we're going to talk about it. We're going to reassess each step along the way as to are they are they feeling that it's helpful or not? Are they feeling it's tolerated or not? And I am going to ask them directly, where are you in your motivation? I sometimes ask people on a balanced scale, pro-recovery versus pro-eating disorder, like really acknowledging that ambivalence is high and um, that it's really hard to be on the fence. <laughs> if I make a medication recommendation to someone and they're not wanting to follow through on the recommendation and I provide them with the information behind it and why the recommendation and so on, and they still don't want to, then I really do want to shift over to, so tell me more about the, the fear of medication. Are you fearful of a side effect, especially with the atypical antipsychotics? Weight gain is a very common side effect in the general psychiatric population, but it's not a common side effect in a restrictive eating disorder population. Mm -hmm. If somebody has a binging eating disorder, I do want to be very aware of anything that could induce appetite. And then I reassure them, I don't want to induce appetite. Mm -hmm. I want you to, to have a neutral appetite experience with your medication because just the work you're doing is going to give you differences to observe observe and, and how you feel about food and how your body's responding to it and whether you get your appetite back. I have no interest in falsely addressing that with a medication. And if yeah. I see that happening, I'll remove that medication because it's not appropriate for you. This ties back so well to something you said earlier is that most people have one or two people on their team that they kind of align with or go to. And so for the dietitian to have this information, I know when I'm working with someone and I can, I, you know, look, I went into nutrition because I believe that a lot of things with good nutrition can, can help people feel better and have mm -hmm. the most energy, et cetera. But I'm not anti-medication, but a lot of our clients are so, and patients. And so how do I, you know, getting them over to a psychiatrist, of course, that's the therapist too. And the therapist may have that relationship with that client that can, can help. But I have to also let people know that a psychiatrist is not just going to give medication. They are someone you can ask those questions to and mm -hmm. say, I'm look, doc, I'm not ready for medication yet, but I'm here. What can you tell me? And, and then that way you can, you can ask those questions, you know, that ambivalence kind of weighing back and forth of pro recovery or pro eating disorder mm -hmm. right now. I was you know, thinking the same thing because you, we were talking so scientific and medical, and then you brought in the ambivalence part. And that's, that's our language as dietitians, we get the <laughs> ambivalence thing. but it's nice to hear that it really does all tie together. Absolutely. And you can tell a patient, you can tell a patient, anyone can tell a patient, we're doing this medication. We're going to communicate this with your dietitian. If they're seeing any kind of of change in your weight or your body's response to your meal plan or how you're using your meal plan that is not consistent with your previous history. I want them to let me know. I don't expect that to happen, but I understand that's your fear. We're going to communicate about it. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And I will also say that one of the ways that SSRIs work, because it's all a mystery, right? It's a cascading system of you take this medicine, you maybe start to feel some effects in four to six weeks and eight to 12 weeks. We'll know if it's really helping or not and what's going on in all of that time. 
What we know about how medicines help, how the antidepressant medications work is they do enhance brain plasticity. So in our lives, before we started treatment for our eating disorder, our depression, our anxiety, we've had numerous learning experiences that have shaped who we are today, including areas where we have confidence and areas where we do not, areas where we hold certain beliefs. And those beliefs have become very reinforced in our obsessive behavioral pattern of, I have this fear, so I do this behavior, and I have this fear, and I do this behavior, and it just, you know, the brain learns beautifully. So it's done all this learning. So now here you are, you're coming to the treatment, you're wanting to see your dietitian, I hope, you're wanting to see your therapist, I hope, and your psychiatrist, I hope, and your medical providers otherwise, because some people don't see their psychiatrist, they see a primary care doctor or an adolescent medicine specialist, etc. But regardless, as they're doing that work, this is the time. They're improving their environment. They're giving themselves challenges about how do they think about things? How do they believe things? What evidence do they have? And they're having assistance in in looking through those concepts. Enhancing brain plasticity with the medication enhances the work of therapy. It helps the brain do the new experience and the new learning and hold on to it. So if you're going to do a medication, let's do it while you're also doing this other work because it's going to enhance your work. Mm -hmm. And maybe at some point in recovery, you'll be in a position where you've learned the other pathways, you've reinforced coping strategies, you've improved your relationships, your life is less stressful, and you could trial stepping away from the medication, but let it work for you while you're doing the very hard work. I mean, you just you saying how your brain, the brain plasticity, which most of us are aware of, but the areas that hold beliefs, the areas that learn beautifully, it takes away the judgment and the stigma about mental illness. It's just like your brain is holding this memory. It's holding this belief. It's, it, it's, it, I just loved the way you phrased that. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I have a lot of families that are very scared to start any of these medicines because they feel like we're altering brain chemistry and we're going to control their personality. And so having those tools to talk about is really helpful. And do you have any analogies you use or any conversations that you use to try to explain how this medicine is not going to change their kid? Absolutely. All of us have personality traits and who we are. And when we're under stress, we usually become more and more rigid. We back up into our comfort zones, whether it's more obsessive control, being more histrionic, needing more nurturing, being more avoidant. We all have our personality traits that are somewhat flexible. And then we back up under the context of stress. So most people in their eating disorder and their development of their eating disorder, their maintenance of their eating disorder are not functioning in their baseline personality and their baseline relationships. Most family members can say, this is not the little girl or the little boy that they were, you know, pre-latency, eight years old, whatever, that this is not my same child. How often do we hear that? Or a husband will say, this is not who my wife was when I married her or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then patients can also say, I don't know who I am anymore, or I only am my eating disorder or I'm alone without my eating disorder, all these things that show that they are not in their genuine state. So the medication can help them hear themselves better and start to 
have their values and their relationships become more prominent in their decision-making and in their thoughts and their experiences. So if anything, it should help them return to who they were and in no way take them away. I love that. I love you too. I love hearing a parent say, I've got my daughter back or I haven't, Mm -hmm. you know, I've had a phone conversation with her and she sounded like herself and I haven't heard her in years. This is why we stay in this field. I mean, the work can be so rewarding. It can be so mm-hmm. difficult, but I mean, just the theme is collaboration, teamwork, meeting your your patient, your client where they are, using the language that helps them look inward and see themselves and using any tools that we have, which can be medications, which is definitely nutrition for eating disorders. And it's just so interesting how dietitians have fought for years to be included in in the payer system with eating disorders. And those of us in the outpatient world, um, we we fight for, for coverage. But anyways, just your collaboration and your way of teaching Dr. Godwin has been so helpful today. Abby, you have a kind of a wrap-up question for us. Yes, I do. So, Dr. Godwin, taking yourself back to entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? Ooh, I wish when I first entered that I had been trained in how nutrition impacts physiologic response. Mm-hmm. That's something that I've come to over time through working within the field, why our medicine's not useful, reading and reading and reading. And, and as you put all of that information together, it's like, oh my goodness, there, there are common themes, which is that when you're malnourished, your meds don't work. And then you, you learn about, oh, how does this medicine or how does normal body chemistry, not even medicine, how does serotonin get developed in the body? Cause you can't take a serotonin pill saying that has to be produced within the body. How does that happen? As you learn about, you're like, well, that's a nutrient and that's a nutrient and that's a precursor of a nutrient. And that's, you know, it's, it's so clear that the evidence is there, but that in, in most of medicine, nutritional status is overlooked. And in our situation, in our unique patient body, we cannot overlook a nutritional circumstance, but nutritional circumstance is not the primary factor either. It's the exacerbation. It's what's causing things to be to go downhill because it's also changing the physiologic function within the body. Do you have any resources that have helped you learn that about the connection of the body and drugs and food and nutrition that another professional listening could use? I trained at UCSD, University of California, San Diego, and Dr. Stephen Stahl, who is a renowned psychopharmacologist, was one of our lecturers. He has since gone on to create NEI, which is the Neuroscience Educational Institute. And I've been a member of that since my residency and continue to do uh, learnings with them all the time. They're not eating disorder specific, they're psychopharm conferences. But taking that psychopharm conference and thinking about it in the terms of our patient population is where most of this has come together. Also, while I was at UCSD, we kept hearing that Walter Kay was coming, who is a, a well-renowned also a researcher specific to eating disorders. And as it turned out, he came the year after my residency completed. Oh, no. <laughs> I kept hearing he was coming. But, you know, 
I think the Enos Disorders community is small and the Enos Disorders research community is small. So there's familiarity with who are the players and, and what work are they doing. And then finally, we're also the building that our Enos Disorders program in is, is called LIBER, which is the Laureate Institute for Brain Research. And we collaborate with the research scientists who are here and have functional fMRI and float tank. And we're, we're allowing our patients to take part in that on a voluntary basis if they, if they want to. So we're trying to contribute to that body of education. And do you want to say anything about that research institute? I'm just fascinated by, it could take another three hours for us to talk about all the things happening there, but... I think Dr. Mosman has the most direct collaboration, but I will say we've done float studies and avatar studies. In the avatar study, patients are looking specifically at body image and how does body image shift over the course of weight restoration. Um, They design their own avatar of how they see themselves, and then they have a computer-generated avatar. There's the difference between the two of them. Um, And then in the float tanks, because that decreases your sensory your, your external sensory experience. So then there's also work around the, the inner state with that. And then in functional MRI, what are they seeing when we're taking people through beliefs around food, images that are neutral, images that are body image, images that are, are food related. So all sorts of, oh, there's a capsule study, which is we, sw- they, they, not me, they swallow a camera pill, which is taking images throughout its course of transit. I think we got approval for a microbiome study that they're still kind of putting together how to do it, but looking at doing a stool. It's uh, um, changing somebody's microbiome by using a a normal stool that has been sanitized. Fecal injection. Yeah. Transplant. Fecal transplant. Yeah. Yes. And Beth, I wanted to say earlier, you mentioned how hard dietitians have to fight, especially in the outpatient world, to be included in the insurance for for a patient's treatment team. And while that is an ongoing fight, absolutely. I will also say we tell patients, your dietitian is a primary part of your treatment. And if you think about what your copay is for admitting to the hospital, Mm. seeing a dietitian for a whole year is going to be less than your copay for a new hospital admission. The value is beyond words. Yeah. Thank you for that. Absolutely. I'm going to use it. I am Please do. Use it. Okay. I'm to talk about the money of healthcare. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad you wrapped back around to that. And I'm definitely going to cross-reference your episode with Dr. Mosman's episode and then all the, the research that's happening there at Laureate. So thank you for joining us today. We are really so, again, honored to have you with us. And I learned a ton. My brain is is hurting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when this pandemic is over, I I hope you all can join us for our professional visits. I've missed seeing everyone. (laughs) I'm in line. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com slash professionals.